Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants, because here we go. There is a lot to cover with Samuel. Okay, so we, um, we have covered Hannah. We have covered Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. Okay, so we know where Samuel came from. He had an amazing mother. We saw the, um, really, the difference between the story of Hannah and Samuel, the beauty there, the light, the purity that is going on. The difference with that and the corrupt priesthood with Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. And so now we're going to go back and we're really going to look at who was Samuel. And I'm telling you, I hope we can make it through. I'm going to end the night if I can get where I want to get. I'm going to end the night maybe with more questions than answers. Because if I make it to 1 Samuel chapter 13, that chapter has caused me so much time and thought and pondering and study. And to be honest, um, I think I have a handle on it. But at the end of the day, it leaves you kind of going, hmm, right? And so we're going to try to get to there, okay? So I'm going to use my notes a little more today because I'm going to try to uh, not go on any bird walks, all right? Let's go. Lord, thank you so much for tonight. God, I pray that you would help focus me directly on exactly what you would like me to share tonight. Lord, this is your Bible study. I give you full reign. I ask that you teach me through my own mouth. And God, as we look at Samuel, um, I pray that I do it in a way that, Lord, honors Samuel for the amazing man that he was, but also looks at Samuel as a human being. And God, maybe that we realize that the characters in Scripture The heroes aren't perfect and the bad guys aren't all bad, that we're human. And so we can learn from each one. But above all, God, you are perfect and you are sovereign and your loving kindness blows me away. Uh, We love you in Jesus name. Amen. Okay, so we start with Samuel the boy. Okay, 1 Samuel 2, 18 through 21 says this. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home. And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. So you have this beautiful picture of this young boy dressed in a little white epid linen. And um, it is in contrast to what we saw with Hophni and Phinehas. You see this young, innocence, purity, white linen. All of that is very symbolic. And here he is. Um, I cannot imagine watching my basically five to six-year-old walk into the temple to serve for life. When I took Zach to kindergarten at Northwest Community Christian, I about came undone. I mean, I saw that little 
sweetheart sitting at desk. I never saw it coming. And I looked at him and I thought, oh my word, I'm about to cry. I cannot do this. And I said bye to him. I turned around. I walked out and cried my guts out all the way to my minivan. Yes, I said minivan. And um, called his dad and I'm like, he's in school. And he's like, Shannon, you're going to pick him up at noon. And I'm like, well, I don't care. Like once they're in school, they're gone. Which is true, by the way. It's like when you have a marker, it seems to go so fast. But this woman dedicated her son to work in the tabernacle for life. And as a young boy, she handed him over to Eli. Now I'm going to tell you this. I do not think she only visited her son once a year. But this is pinpointing that every year when they went to offer the sacrifice in Shiloh, she brought him a robe, which tells me, I picture her, I may have told you this before, in in a rocking chair, making that robe for him and praying. And what a contrast you see, a woman who is not even in the same geographical location with her son, but yet she was so faithful in prayer that look what kind of man he turned out to be. And in contrast, you have Eli who was with his sons every day and that did not turn out so good. So it's not only about geographic uh, proximity that makes us a good parent, right? And so you see that. In chapter three, it says, the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli's, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. And Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. By the way, how many times does that happen? It happens three times, okay? And in the end, Eli finally realizes what is going on. Why? Because his eyes are dim. He's not just getting older and dimmer physically. He's a little, he's slowing down spiritually, all right? You see all this symbolism. But he basically says this, I did not call you, go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not been revealed to him. So the third time when he went, he goes to Eli and it says, then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So he told him, go and lie down. And if he calls you, say, speak Lord for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there calling as at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. He goes on, I'm gonna bullet point some of this for you and not read the entire thing. But basically, let me ask you this. Why was the word of the Lord rare in those days? Because nobody was listening, right? We said this last time. Um, He was silent because he had already told them enough and they weren't obeying what he already said. So why give any added new information? Nobody's listening. No one's heeding his word. And so now he is calling out because he has a young boy that is willing to open the door. The hearts of the people are hard. They have a corrupt priesthood. Um, Even Eli wasn't listening. Um, And by the way, we know his eyes were dim because he sure didn't see what was going on with Hannah. He saw what was going on with his sons and didn't do a darn thing about it. So here you have this beautiful picture of this young boy who now is about the age of 12. 
And the picture is that he has fallen asleep in the light of the tabernacle. So somewhere near the candelabra, the, the menorah, the huge menorah, probably because his job was to keep the oil full. And here he is in these beautiful little menial tasks being, being a great servant. But the fact is he's never heard the word of the Lord himself. He is serving. Eli is training him. He has fallen asleep and God has called out to him. The thing is, which I love, is God is always calling out. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come into him and sit down and hang out with him, have dinner with him, have community with him. And that is what he does. I love the fact that when he hears the voice of the Lord, he runs to Eli. That makes perfect sense. He's 12 years old. If he hears someone calling out, he thinks it's his mentor. He thinks it's his leader. So if he has a question, he's going to get up and go to Eli. And he does it every time, which that's what our kids do. When there is something that they need to know or they feel like they're being called or stirred, who do they go to? They go to us, right? But eventually... Something has to change. Eli realized that the Lord is crying out to Samuel and he does exactly what he needs to do. He says to Samuel, listen, the Lord is wanting to talk to you. I remember when I was married, I was young. I, I laughed. I used to think, oh, well, the Holy Spirit was to talk to me. So therefore I could talk to my husband and tell him what he said. Right. Have you ever been like that? Or that you think, oh, maybe the Lord's talking to you and you need to tell your, your young people, right? Your young adults what he said. We forget the fact that they too have the Holy Spirit and he is very capable of talking to them. And so Eli is saying, listen, this is what you need to do. You need to go put yourself in a posture where you are still and can listen for the voice of the Lord. That is great advice. Because here's the thing, as parents, a lot of times we want to answer every question and we want to fix every problem instead of training our children to go get in a posture of quiet to listen to the Lord for themselves. Because at some point, a transition has to happen where from they know about God to they know God. They have that relationship. And I think it's also a lesson for us today. How often do you put yourself in a posture where you're quiet enough that if God was speaking, you would even hear him? We are so busy or we think we're so busy and we've trained our kids to be busy. And I'm going to tell you right now, bored is good because that's where you think of things. That's where people create, right? Because you're giving your mind time to think, time to just go. That's where you ask the questions. Why am I here? Is there a God? If there is, what is he like? That's where all the questions happen. We're in those times. And how often do we put ourselves in a posture where God can speak to us? And I love the fact that he says, if God speaks to you, he did not presume that every time he was in that posture that God would. He's not going to speak to you every time you're silent. Haven't you ever done that? And you're like, hello. I know you say you're knocking, but I do not hear you, right? <laughs> And he says, but here's the kicker. If he speaks to you, here is how you answer. Here it's in our, our own words. Hi, God, I'm your servant. 
and I'm right here listening. And that listening doesn't just mean hearing. It is literally, he's putting himself in a subservient role to God. And he is saying, I am awaiting your command. That is what he is doing. And so that is exactly what Eli tells him to do. And that is exactly what Samuel does. What word did God speak? This was no little message. A prophet has already come to Samuel and said, listen, you're going to lose the priesthood. I am going to remove the power from your family. There's not going to be an old man left in your family. Matter of fact, the only priest left in your line is going to be asking someone for a menial job so that he can eat. Like, it's coming, dude. You better get your stuff together. Even from the prophet to now, there has been time for repentance, and Eli hasn't done it. And so God comes to young Samuel, who's 12. How would you like to receive word that your mentor, your leader is about to go down? His two sons are going to die on the same day. And you've just been told that as evidence of this prophecy. And at 12 years old, you have to go tell him. I'd get back to work too and hope nobody talked to me. It said he couldn't, he couldn't go back to sleep. I wouldn't be able to go back to sleep, but here's the kicker. When Eli comes and finds him and says, did the Lord come and what did he say? That 12-year-old boy was completely faithful to the word of God and he did not leave out one thing. And that is why he became such a prophet in the land of Israel because he was faithful to give what God gave. He was faithful to give out all of the truth. And I'm gonna tell you this, I gotta give uh, props to Eli. He took it. He took it humbly. Samuel risked his life to give this message to this powerful man. So you got to give him kudos, but you also have to recognize that Eli said, may the Lord do what he sees right. And so you see both of those things. He humbly accepts it. So now we don't just see in scripture Samuel as a boy. We see him as a prophet because it says he grew up and God was with him. He continued to open the door, basically. He faithfully delivered God's words because the scripture says that no word he spoke fell to the ground. What does that mean? His words weren't wasted. He didn't give extra fluff. There was no extra word going on. He specifically spoke exactly what God said and every word of it came true. And that's what made him a true prophet. Um, You need to remember that in the Old Testament, some commentaries will say other than Moses, Samuel was the only one was one of the first ones to be called a prophet. I'm going to argue with that a little bit. I think it was Abraham, because if you remember when Abraham gave Sarah or allowed Sarah to be taken by Pharaoh and said she was his sister. Do you remember that story? And Pharaoh was preparing her to sleep with her. And yet he had a dream And it says, oh my word, this man is a prophet. So I think Abraham was recognized as a prophet. Moses was described as a prophet. But Samuel was the first prophet who basically taught other prophets. There was a school of prophecy. If you remember in this story, Um, Saul is going to encounter the prophets that are coming down. We'll see that a little bit later. So Samuel was the first line of the prophets that we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Okay, so he spoke the word of the Lord. Now I want you to see him as the judge because Samuel is unique. He was all three. 
He was a priest, not because of his bloodline, but because, well, slightly, he was a Levite, but because of the oath of his mom and the stamp of approval by Eli. He was a priest for life. He was a prophet because he was chosen by God because he opened the door and he said what God told him to say. But he also became the last judge. Okay, do you remember the cycle? It says the men of Cariath Jermon, and this is in chapter seven, came and took up the ark of the Lord. Why did they come get the ark? Here's a review. Why did they have to come get the ark? That's right, because remember the Philistines stole it. They killed Hophni and Phinehas. Eli fell backwards and broke his neck because he's fat, right? And they took the ark and they got the tumors of the groin. Please tell me you didn't forget that story already, right? And then they made the golden tumors of images of their tumors and sent it back. And then it was sent back to the people who should have known how to handle it and they didn't. And so Israelites were struck down and they too wanted to get rid of the ark and they sent it to these people, okay? And so... It says, and they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath Jermon, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Then your next title in, says in your Bible, Samuel judges Israel. This is when he truly becomes the judge. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, by the way, that's chapter seven, verse three. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisk from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the bells and the asterisk and they served the Lord only. I want you to recognize, you've got to recognize cycles in the Bible. So you're in the cycle of the judges. Okay, Samuel now has been brought up to be a judge. Why is he having them clean house? What is that telling you? That after the Philistines kicked their tail, right? And they too put the ark away. What did they start doing? Not only was their priesthood corrupt, they allowed all the foreign gods back in their land. So what are they doing? They're going around the cycle again. They're worshiping the gods of the other people. So now the Philistines are coming all into their land and they are getting fired up again. And they're about to oppress Israel again. And so now they've come to Samuel. Samuel is the last judge of all this, of all the cycle. And he tells them, listen, you go clean house. He says, gather. Then Samuel said in verse five, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day. And they said, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him. As Israel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack. So as it's burning, 
They drew near to attack, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. The men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as Beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called it Ebenezer, for he said, till now the Lord has helped us, or thus far. So the Philistines were subdued and did not enter the territory of Israel again. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel's life. You should see that in the cycle. And the cities of the Philistines that had been taken from Israel were all restored, all from Ekron to Gath. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites as well. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places, but he would return home, and he built there an altar of the Lord. I would love to see this on a movie. This is what happened. I mean, honestly, this is an amazing movie. They have allowed the Philistines to come back into their land. They're about to get their butts kicked. They cry out for help. Samuel comes in as the judge. He says, first thing, you want to get things right? Clean house. You go knock down all of those high places, all the Asherah poles. Listen, you get rid of it because we will worship Jehovah and Jehovah only. And he says, you get rid of that mess. And when you do, by the way, does that remind you of Gideon? If you know the story, Gideon, another judge, God came in and said, Gideon, you mighty warrior, which is a joke. It's hilarious to me because it is a young guy. He is threshing wheat in a wine press. You don't thresh wheat in a wine press. You're hiding there because you know the enemy is looking for you. I love that God doesn't just see where we are. He sees what we can be. And he goes, you are a mighty warrior. I'm going to use you. But the first thing I need you to do is go through your father's land and you get rid of all the idols. Same here, clean house, do inventory. So he said, you do that and then you meet me at Mizpah. Mizpah means, uh, it means high tower, watchtower. It's a high place. It is a very public place. It means lookout, all right? So he's saying we're all coming together as a nation in a high public place, a place that's where they would uh, have altars. They would take it to the high place. And what we're going to do is we're going to have absolute repentance. They took water and they poured it out on the land. Are you seeing the visual? Okay. They are pouring out themselves before God in repentance. It also gives a picture of tears pouring out, right? It also is a fresh start. Think about when it rains in Phoenix, Arizona, and that dry dirt sucks up that water. It is a new beginning, a time of repentance and cleansing. And not only that, they fast. So they clean house, go to a public place, it is going to be emotionally costly and it's going to be physically costly to them. And they get it right. In the middle of that, the Philistines realize the entire nation is in one place. And they're like, we got them. And so they use that to then approach them and fight. And if I could see this on a movie, it would be awesome. Because here you have all of this going on. You see all of them lamenting. And if we were watching a movie, we would be like, they're coming. Y'all, they're coming.
doing? And the whole time you're watching them repent and have church and they have no idea that the Philistines are coming to kick their rear. And the whole time you're like, oh my gosh, and can't you hear the music? It would have you so stressed out in a movie. And they're coming and they're coming. And then all of a sudden they realize they're coming and you have Samuel giving this offering and literally he gives the offering and the, and the Philistines are almost there. And once he gives the offering, there is a supernatural thing that happens and God thunders down and you hear the horses go and they're freaked out and you can see it on the movie and they start killing themselves and each other. And then the Israelites realize, think how weak they are. They're emotionally spent. They're physically weak. They've been fasting. They were not prepared for a battle. But God strikes them and it says that they chase them down and they literally wipe them completely out of the land. Unbelievable. I love the fact that, uh, I think I wrote it down in the message if I can find it. Anyway, it basically says that the Philistines went home and they didn't cross over anymore, right? Um, but I thought about something. What a perfect time for the enemy to attack when they were so weak and vulnerable. When you've been poured out like a drink offering, you feel a little vulnerable. You're not quite prepared to take a punch. They cried out to Samuel and they trusted him to intervene. But I got to thinking, do you have anyone in your life who is in a very vulnerable time? Those who have taken huge steps to humble themselves and to seek repentance? They've messed up. Life hasn't turned out so great. They know it. They're owning it. And they come literally pour themselves out. And when they do, they are trusting at that moment that God is long-suffering and the people of God are forgiving it's a very vulnerable place to be. Those who need your encouragement and your prayers, those who need your love, I want to ask you something. Have you been a faithful agent of grace to those people? Because once somebody has repented and poured it out, do you want to know what our only command is? We bring them in with the grace of God and love and we restore them. That is our job. Forgiveness. I wonder how many people have done that and instead of us being an agent of grace as the church, they've actually been punched in their most vulnerable state. The enemy attacks when we're very vulnerable. So we've seen him as a boy. We've seen him as a prophet. We've seen him as a judge. Here we see him as a priest. Do not forget, he could make the sacrifice because he was a priest. And isn't it interesting, this whole thing? Can you say just in time? Honestly, talk about at the last stinking minute. The Philistines were about to attack, and at the last minute, God intervened. Do you ever feel like God's almost late? Like, really, Lord? Could you, could you have come just a little earlier? God comes right on time, right? But I tell you what. Oh, he always makes us have faith. And by the way, there was an added piece. Did you see the line that says, and there was also peace with the Amorites? Listen, not only did they wipe the Philistines out of the land by their repentance and getting their, getting their posture right with God, but there was peace with another people they weren't even looking for. Added bonus right there. 
So it literally says that Samuel gave solid leadership to Israel his entire life. Not only that, he went on a circuit. Okay, I travel all the time. It's exhausting. I'm so tired. I was in Florida for four nights. I got back yesterday. It's a three-hour time difference, and I have an airplane. And to come back and to do your local stuff and to travel on the weekends and to come back, it's exhausting. It takes a lot out of you. His entire life, he did not waste a moment. I mean, he led those people. He gave them everything he had. He made himself known. He didn't leave anybody out. He went to all the big locations around and made sure he was available to his entire nation. He did that nonstop, but then he would also return home. And then it came. The greatest insult. We want a king. Can you imagine You have given your whole life because what is the cycle? They worship the gods of the other people. They were oppressed. They cried out for a deliverer. God would bring them a judge. As long as the judge was alive and only enforced Jehovah worship, they would obey. And then the judge would what? Die. And then they would go around the cycle. He's not dead. He has not even died. He has given his entire life to these people. And how do they thank him? I want you to understand he has feelings. They reject him. And they say, thanks. This has been great. Appreciate it. But we want a king. And so as, as we read this, 1 Samuel chapter 8, I want you to think about this from Samuel's perspective. And what an insult it was, because God tells him, basically, don't take it personal, which tells us what? He was taking it personal. So listen to this chapter. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and they perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Key verse, like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over you. Why would God say that to him? Because what is he feeling? Rejected. And God says, listen, According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt and to this day forsaking me and serving other gods, for they are also doing to you. What is God saying? Don't take it personal. Dude, hashtag me too. <laughs> like join the club. I got you. I know what you're feeling because I've been feeling it from the moment I allowed them to exit Egypt. They have been rejecting me. So really, Samuel, this is not about you. It's really about me. But that's easy to say because now he has been personally in his soul and his heart injured. How well do we get over that? 
Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly, solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over you. And we're going to look at those, but I'm going to give you the bullet points. But here's the thing. Why did the elders of Israel decide to meet with Samuel and what did they want and why? Why did the elders ask for a meeting? What did they want? I just told you. They wanted a king. Okay. They wanted a king. Why? I'm going to tell you why. Because I probably would have done exactly what these elders did. It is so easy to read scripture and to read the narrative and go, these are the bad guys. These are the good guys. The bad guys are all bad and the good guys are all good. We know good and well, that is not a true story. That is not humanity. Okay. And so if we put ourselves in with the elders, I would have done the same thing because what do they know? For 400 years, when they have not had a strong leader, what was their tendency? They fell away from God and it was complete anarchy. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes and they would be oppressed and they were going to be at war. They knew this. What are they seeing? They are seeing it happen. They are seeing a great leader who is now stinking old. Don't you love how they go to him and they go, you are old. Well, thank you. I appreciate you telling me that. That's so wonderful. Appreciate it. But the fact is he was old and they saw him coming to a point where he was no longer going to be able to lead or he was going to die. And what else did they see? His sons did not follow in his ways. So I'm going to tell you, if I had been an elder and I had been in that situation, I probably would have done the same thing and I would have come and I would have been addressing the fact that we're going to have a lack of leadership going on. Here is my other problem though. Here's my question. Why did Samuel appoint his sons as judges? Yep. Because all through the Old Testament, what is a judge? A judge was someone picked by God who was given for a certain time. Remember, they were all different. Ehud was some crazy left-handed dude, which was so weird. He used Deborah, woman. That was strange, right? Gideon was a young guy hiding in a wine press. I mean, he literally raised up random people. Samson. Samson. He, he raised up random people for a certain period of time to free his people. We do not ever see the title of judge being passed down to sons, right? That's more like a what? That's more like, well, priest, but that was, that was for a reason because priests were to pass it down. But that's more like a monarchy. That's more like a king. So here you have Samuel passing down the job to his sons. Now you may say, okay, well, maybe... What he did is he just saw that the job was so big that he delegated. Okay, I'll give you that. Is there delegation in the Old Testament? Yes. If you look at the story of Moses, do you remember he's in the wilderness? They're all coming to him with their problems. And Jethro, his father-in-law, shows up and goes, Dude, what are you doing? You can't do all this by yourself. You need to delegate. But listen to what he says about it. Oop, got to find it. Okay. Exodus 18, 21 through 22. Jesse says this, Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain, 
and you shall place them as leaders over thousands of hundreds of fifties of tens. So if you're going to delegate, what should be the standard of the men that you choose? They should be men of God, men of truth, men who hate dishonest gain. What else should Samuel have known? The law, Deuteronomy, he was a priest. Deuteronomy 16, 19 says this, you shall not distort justice, you shall not be partial, and you shall not take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. So my real question is, why in the world did he give this job to his sons? And if he did delegate to his sons, I have a problem with the character of the sons because they weren't men of God, they weren't men of truth, and they were takers of bribes. All right? Now, what is going on? Is he having a tendency to almost operate as a king that hands down that role to his sons? Because there was another man who was tempted by that, and his name was Gideon, Judges 8.23. They came to Gideon as a nation, and they asked him to rule over them. Here is Gideon's response, Judges 8.23. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my sons will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. What is he reminding him? I'm a judge. I was brought up for such a time as this. I am not your king. This is not a monarchy. I am not passing this down to my sons. Let me be clear. God is our king. That was Gideon. I cannot give you the answer of why Samson did that. I mean, Samson, Lord have mercy. Samuel did that. I'm just bringing it to our mind, okay? But here's what I wrote once I read about his sons. For goodness sake, he grew up with Hophni and Phinehas. Holy crud, are you kidding me? Is this a trend for leaders' kids, right? I don't know. I don't know what happened to his sons. I can't even speculate. Maybe it was the tour. He needed to be home more. I have no idea. But once again, we have these incredible leaders, men of position, whose sons do not follow in their ways. Either way, the elders see a storm coming and they ask for a king. Now, here's another question. See, I told you I'm just going to give you all kinds of questions. This is what studying the Bible does. Some people will say in commentaries or teaching that it was just flat out wrong for them to ask for a king. That, that was the problem. They should not have asked for a king. Okay, let me make you think about that a little bit. Because in Genesis 17.6, in Genesis 35.11, in Genesis 49.10, there is suggestion of a king coming in Israel. Because God says to Abraham, from you, I'm going to bring great generations. I'm going to bring a nation and from you will come kings. He also says it to Jacob. And when Jacob blesses his sons at the end of his life, he makes the proclamation that the scepter, which reminds you of what? A king ruling will not depart from Judah. So already we have a prophecy that the kingship will come through the line of Judah. So we have all of this hint that a king is coming in the nation of Israel. We also have in Deuteronomy, do you remember what Deuteronomy is? Because I want to make sure you know. 
Genesis, creation, fall, flood, Tower of Babel, first half. Second half, four men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Joseph gets them to Egypt. There's Exodus. They exit, right? Genesis, Exodus, what? Leviticus. Leviticus is at the mountain. Leviticus is all the rules of holy living and sacrifice and offerings. It's the setting up of the tabernacle. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, what? Numbers. Numbers is when they're not faithful and they have to turn their butts around and go around the mountain 39 more years. Deuteronomy is now the old have passed away, the young have risen to adulthood, and now Moses is giving them the second law all over again, the same law the second time, so that they can accept it as adults. Because God doesn't force anybody to have a relationship with him. He asks. Well, they were kids when he asked the first time. Now they're adults. So in order to go into the land, he needs to know, are you my nation? And am I your God? And so he does this. This is written in Deuteronomy. And this is what it says. When you enter the land, which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen, you shall set a king over you yourself, and you may not put a foreigner over yourself who is not your countryman. If you keep going down in Deuteronomy, it literally gives the rules for a king. Number one, king must be an Israelite. We just read that. Number two, he may not gain tons of horses. You're like, why? Because horses came from Egypt. The Egyptians were the ones who had the horses and would breed horses. So he is saying, I don't want you to go back and start trading in horses with the very nation that oppressed you and put you in bondage. For no way are you to turn and go back in any kind of relationship with Egypt. So you must, he must be an Israelite. He must not have tons of horses and he must not have many wives. Why? Because in ancient times, kings would basically sign treaties by intermarrying, okay? They would take on royal wives from other kingdoms so that there would be treaties and there would be peace. Not to mention, if you take in a foreign woman, what is the tendency? She worships other gods. So what do you think she's going to bring into your land? The worshiping of other gods. Ask Ahab. If you don't know that story, he married Jezebel. She's great, right? I mean, come on. She was brutal. She was eaten by dogs. It wasn't a good ending. Um, and some of you are like, I don't even know this story, but you've heard people say, oh, she's got the spirit of Jezebel, right? Well, that's why. She was wicked. She brought in all kinds of idolatry into the land of Israel, and she killed the priests of God. And so you have these instructions given for a reason. So must be an Israelite, can't have tons of horses, not many wives, and don't, don't stock up gold and silver. Why? Because Israel didn't have gold and silver. So in order to have gold and silver, you're having to what? Really trade with foreign nations, right? And plus, by stacking that up, what are you saying? You don't have a dependence on God. 
You are accumulating wealth. And he's like, I got you. I brought you to the land of milk and honey and I'm going to take care of you. So don't be doing that. Your king should not do that. And lastly, the king was instructed to keep a copy of the written law and read it often. So isn't it interesting that in in, uh, Genesis, there's hints that a king is coming. In Deuteronomy, he literally predicts they're going to ask for one so they can be like all the other nations. And he's like, no, Uh, when you have one, it will be one of my choice. And here are the rules. What I find interesting is the fact that they want to be like all the other nations. They want a king like everybody else. When we look at one of the wisest men they ever chose, who is who? Solomon. Let me tell you some things about him. He had 4,000 stalls and 12,000 horses. He had in 2 Chronicles 9.27, it said he had so much silver that literally he made silver as common as stone, the Bible says. He had 666 talents, I should have looked that up for you, of gold each year. That's a whole lot of stinking gold every year. He had 700 wives of royal birth. Okay, not just Israelite women, royal women from all over. And if that didn't satisfy me, I had 300 chicks on the side. This was the wisest man in the world. This was the best the world had to offer. Wow. Could this request actually be more about a lack of trust beneath the request than the object of it? The point is God was their king. He said it. In 1 Samuel 8, 7, it says, The Lord said to Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people and all that they say. For they have not rejected you, they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. 1 Samuel 12, 12. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the children of Ammon, came against you, you said unto me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. So the question is, was the request for a king really wrong in and of itself? Was it wrong because they wanted to be like all the other nations? What is happening? (laughs) I used to teach high school on Monday nights and this would happen. And one night I was telling a story, I don't even remember what it was. (laughs) And it fits so perfectly. It was like, and God called down whatever. And it went, and all they were like, oh my gosh. You know, I can't even imagine. Or was the problem really the heart underneath the request and the fact that God, they weren't lacking a king. They had never lacked a leader. Do you understand that? God had always always provided for them. They had lacked nothing because God was unfaithful. They were lacking because they were unfaithful. And so although they did not know who would be their next leader, they should have known God was their king. And if they needed a leader, who was going to provide him? So bottom line, I think they ask for a king based on a lot of reasons that I do the same thing. It's a lack of trust. They wanted security. They wanted something they knew was going to be there that they can count on, meaning they didn't want to have to have faith. Just like I want to have a check every month. 
Is anybody else like me? I want to know what it is. I want to know it's coming. That makes me feel good. I feel secure, which is a false security because at any moment, y'all know, we, we might not get one. So anything can happen. But we get lulled into this security that we can count on this thing. That's why I can never be a salesman on all commission because it's feast or famine. I mean, come on, you have to trust God in that job. Are y'all not thinking that's funny? I'm in ministry <laughs> at any moment, right? And so they wanted to know, maybe, just maybe, that's why David was such an amazing king. Because listen to the things he said. Psalms 44.4, you are my king, O God. Command deliverances for Jacob. Psalms 5.2, hearken unto the voice of my cry, my king and my God, for unto you I pray. Psalms 47, 6 through 8, sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises into our king, sing praises for God is the king of all the earth. Psalm 68, 24, they have seen your goings, O God, even the goings of my God, my king in the sanctuary. And I could go on and on and on and on. David was the king, but he knew he was a vassal king under the king of kings. And that is what made him so awesome. He knew his position before the Lord. But see, their request is coming in, and it is a request that is coming out of a lack of faith and a lack of trust of God. They want to control. They want a king they can see, that they can count on, and they want a king that the whole, all the other nations can see. And what I find interesting is if they think the sons of Samuel were bad, Wait till they get a load of the sons of these kings. And you don't have any choice at that point. It's a monarchy. You get whatever son is there. And thus far, how's it been going for leaders' sons? Not so good. Isn't it funny how when we want to see security and we want to have our way and we want to have control and we think we've got it going on that when you really look at it, it's not too smart. It's a lot smarter to count on God. Saul is chosen as king. We're going to look at him next week. He ends up being chosen as the first king. God gives them what they want in the process Samuel now has to anoint this king and he has to watch him have a great victory and he has to uh, literally run the coronation so that the whole nation gets, gets behind Saul and Samuel is having to go through all of this. And in chapter 12, he gives his farewell address. This chapter breaks my heart for Samuel. All right. And this is what he does. His feelings of rejection have to be immense because he is literally standing up on a stage in Gilgal with this new king who has just had the greatest victory ever. The entire nation is yelling, long live the king. Here is Samuel who has worked his tail off to lead them his entire life. And he is sitting there looking at his sons in the crowd and he is right standing beside the new king. And basically, this is what he says in verse 2, chapter 12, verse 2. But now look at me. I am old and gray, and my sons are still here. Can you hear the pain in that? He's like, look at me. 
deal. Everybody's eyes, they're all on him. He's the hero. But could you just look at me for one more minute? I'm still here. And my sons are sitting in the audience. They're not up here. So I gave you what you want. But look at me, and I want to ask you something very important. He then goes through an entire thing where he says, I want to know, tell me, can, can we just talk about me just for a minute? Was I not a good leader? Do you have any problem with me? Did I ever, did I ever lead you astray? Did I ever take anything that did not belong to me? Because now's the time. I want to know. I want your feedback because I'm about to speak to you. And if there is anything in the way, let's get it out of the way right now. And you know what they say? No, you were great. You didn't do any of that. And he's like, okay, well, here's the thing. I'm about to take you on a lesson. I'm about to take you on a history trip. I'm going to step aside for my feelings because God has something to say. And so he then takes them through their past. He takes them through the history of their forefathers. And he basically reminds them, you guys better look at your patterns. You better look back at the past of your parents and your nations because there were certain patterns of unfaithfulness. And guess what? You're walking in the very ruts that your forefathers made. You're going down the same path. You're doing the same things. It is still in you. This lack of trust of God is still in you. And he said, you better look back and recognize these patterns so that you can change them. Do you think there's a lesson in that for us? Do you think there is purpose in looking back? Yeah. Do you have patterns your parents had? Do you think they had some patterns their parents had? Yeah. There are things in you that you probably don't even realize you picked up. And he's saying, you better look at that because I see the same thing in you today. But here's the thing. You need to stop it. You need to stop it. And he says, listen, do not be defined by your past. You better learn from it. Don't be defined from it. Let it develop you. And he also said, listen, we're not slaves to our past because we have free will today. He literally says, you have done all this evil I have told you, but today is a new day. And if you decide to serve God today and fear the Lord today, it will go well with you. Isn't that awesome? We are to look at our past, go through it because it is affecting you. It absolutely is. We have stuff. Look at it, learn from it, learn from your own mistakes, let it develop you, don't let it define you, but then what do you do? Stop looking back and start looking forward because that is where you are going. And he is saying every person, our past does not overrule free will. We have the free will to decide today that we are going to move in a different direction. And he gives them incredible hope. And the beauty is he then has to do it for himself because once he goes through that, he says to them, and you know what? This goes for me too. Because to be honest, this is hot power version, but this is the way I read it. To be honest, if I don't continue praying for you and telling you the truth, I will be disobeying God too which tells you what did he really want to do? 
not pray for them, and not tell them the truth. He wanted to walk away and be done with these people. Why? He's so hurt. He is so hurt and offended. But what a great prophet that he got beyond his feelings. He brought the word of God to them and he says, now you have a choice today and so do I. You need to make the right one and so do I. And then this is the most amazing thing. Ooh, I'm not going to get chapter 13, Mary. Sorry about it. All of a sudden, we have a weather event that shook them. He called down, got, he spoke, and literally in a time of the harvest, which was dry season, this is all chapter 12, if you want to go back and read it, there came a deluge of rain and thunder to where it scared the bejeebers out of them. It rocked them to the core. It would be like me making an announcement and then all of a sudden, in one minute, we like have two feet of snow in Phoenix, Arizona, right? You, it, it was literally God was like flexing his muscle. They had the same reaction as the disciples had when Jesus calmed the storm. Why? Because when the creator speaks, creation must obey. And they knew in that event, it was not just Samuel who was talking. Who was talking? God was talking. Now, my question is this. Why now? Why did he do that now? They've already picked the king. Like you would think that when they first asked for a king, because some time's gone by, he's been anointed, he's had a victory, he is starting to get organized, he's been uh, coronated because now the entire nation is united under him and all this. Why is God bringing this event now? Why didn't he do it when they first asked? Because I don't think this was uh, an event about restraint. It was an event about revelation. Here's what I mean. If God had brought this at the very beginning when they asked, what do you think they would have done? Oh, sorry, God, sorry. We don't need a king. We're good. Judges are fine. We're fine. We really are. Sorry about it. Didn't mean to ask. Didn't mean to bother you. Let's just go about, right? But would it have mattered? Because do you think eventually they just would have ended up right back there? Well, that's what history says. Because as long as there was a restraint or constraint They obeyed, but the minute it was removed, they would go right back. This was not about restraint. It was about revelation. It was about making making them realize what choice they had already made. So, for example, have you ever down the road finally realized what choice you made? Have you ever gotten to a point where all of a sudden... You felt the consequences and the pain and the situation of the choices that you have already made. And you went, oh, what sticks that? When we start to realize and feel a lot of the pain and the fear about some of the choices we have made, right? We are to learn from them and that helps us what? Not make them again. I think he wanted them to understand what they have done. But the beauty is they still had a choice. If you today love me, fear me, and follow me, and your king does, it's going to be good. Don't you love that? There's always hope. 
So when you have that storm that happens, that storm of revelation and you go, oh, when you look at maybe the choices of your grown kids and you go back and analyze everything you ever did as a parent and you say, I should have, would have, could have, da, 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 right? And you start to realize, oh, the beauty is what? Today. Are you going to follow the Lord today? He is so slow to anger and abounding in love and he is so gracious and kind, so full of mercy. And he constantly is knocking, wanting to talk to you. The question is, do you put yourself in the posture to be able to listen? And when you hear, are you willing to say, you know what? You are king. I am not. I am your servant. Speak to me because I'm ready to obey. When we get back next week, I'm going to cover 13, but we're going to go into Saul. But chapter 13, can I just ask you to read it? It's a doozy. And I am going to leave you with probably more questions than I give you answers for. But the reason I want to do that is, y'all, that's Bible study. That's the fun part of it. Because when you do that, you're going to leave next week and you're going to be like thinking about it. Ooh, I wonder what I think. Well, what do you think about him? Well, why did he do that? And how in the world is Saul all that bad when he has a son that is Jonathan, who's awesome. Look at Samuel. His sons don't look too good. I mean, and you start to evaluate. And you know what's awesome about that? You're meditating on God's word. It is so cool. And you realize that humans are human. Nothing new under the sun. So get yourself back here and also go get your friends. Get them in here because we're almost to the beginning of David and they can start right there with us. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for tonight. I thank you for your word. I pray that the stories continue in the hearts of these women and you continue to teach them. I pray they talk about it on the way home. I pray they journal and ask questions, God. But above all, Lord, I pray that every day we put ourselves in a posture to listen, to have a relationship with you and to realize that, oh, you are so trustworthy. You don't fail us. We can count on you. And although, Lord, sometimes it seems like you are very delayed, you teach us in every bit of that delay that you are faithful. You love us. You are good, and there is nothing you cannot do. Lord, increase our faith that we would walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at itsmaryshannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.